It's, uh, it's topsy-turvy day. Uh, you're in the auditorium. It's not the book of Exodus. We're looking at the book of Revelation, and it's not Hiram. And so uh, I don't usually remember my dreams. I, I'm one of those, I don't know, if maybe a lot of you can relate to that. I don't know if it was the intimidation of trying to teach Revelation chapter 10, but I remember my dream last night. And in that dream, all of us were squeezed into one of those small NPR rooms. And one of the small classes um, didn't show up. And Miss Ellen was teaching a bunch of little kids in the back of that classroom. And they were swirling around and they were misbehaving and... Um, I was trying to get somebody to tell me who the son of Carmi was. And so, um, over and over again, it has nothing to do with Revelation, um, more to do with Chronicles, I guess. And uh, that went on in a loop for about ten minutes. And I woke up and I thought, I probably prefer that to what I'm going to have to do this morning. So, it's good to see most of you. I realize there's some of you in, in the wings over here that I can't see as well, but I don't want to risk my life in standing on that pew and lean backwards and flip over. So that would be would not make for a good class. We're in Revelation 10. That's about how far we're going to try to go. I don't, guys, I don't have a screen up here. If you could uh, help me out there so I can see what everybody else is seeing. When we get to Revelation chapter 10, we have a second in a series of interludes. Uh, pauses in the... Uh, writing that John is doing. And we, you did a bit of a review when y'all came back last week uh, as you look at the sevens that are progressing throughout the book. You have the seven churches and the seven angels. Uh, you have the seven seals. And you remember that between the sixth and the seventh seal there was a pause in Revelation chapter 7. Did any of you uh, retain that in your notes as to what, that, what happened in that pause, in that interlude? Okay, there's a, there's a praise that occurs, right? The the uh, God is praised for His greatness. You you go from the seven churches to the the Father and the Lamb in heaven, and then you you get to this message of wrath that God is going to execute on the enemies of God, the Roman Empire, and, and as that takes place, right before that seventh, that climactic seal, you have this praise. You get to chapter eight and chapter nine, and you have these seven trumpets that are promised, and uh, where we find ourselves today is at the end of the sixth trumpet, before the seventh trumpet sounds, which is going to be in Revelation chapter 11 and, and verse 15, you have another interlude, another pause. And in this pause, you have the same intention, you have the same message that uh, John is trying to convey to the Christians it was a message that they needed, and even though our circumstances are different, it's a message that we need, and it's a surprising message. The words aren't found in the text, but the idea is. And the three words that really are um, appropriate for what's going to happen in chapter 10 and uh, chapter 11 through verse 14 is, "Do not be afraid." You know, I think the book of Revelation can be so intimidating to us that when we begin to examine it, uh, because it's mysterious and it's an enigma that, uh, and some of the imagery is so large, like what we're going to see today, uh, its impact is such that it, it can be frightening. But when you look at what Jesus is doing here in 
And what we find John revealing in, in chapter 10 especially, which we're going to look at this morning, is it's to reinforce to them, look, if you're a child of God, I know you're suffering. I'm not adding anything to your suffering. I don't want you to be burdened anymore. Do you remember the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 24? He says, I add no other burden to you. Even though they had a message of change that they needed to make, there's this idea from God that, look, you're suffering, you're struggling enough. And it's a message that Jesus often used in his ministry, right? Can you think of moments when Jesus said to the disciples, do not be afraid? Anything come to mind? Okay, so we have the, uh, the recording of the miracle of the storm on the sea and Jesus admonishing them as he calms the storm that things are out of control in the disciples' lives. These are savvy, experienced fishermen and this situation's too big for them. And in the midst of that, they're at the end of their rope and Jesus makes it better. Now he does so immediately to show his power but he says to them, don't be afraid. In fact, he admonishes them there, right? You have little faith. Can you think of any other times where Jesus says, don't be afraid? How about, yeah, John 14. So what, what are you thinking about in John 14? Okay, so Jesus is about to go to heaven. He's been walking with them for three, three and a half years. He's been mentoring them. He's been developing them. And now he's about to leave them. And so the encouragement that he leaves them is, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He points to the future where there's not going to be this problem, these troubles anymore. Now, he's going to tell them that even though he's going away, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who is going to help them. And then in verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Even after the resurrection, in Matthew chapter 28, right before the giving of the Great Commission, Jesus has encouraged the disciples to meet him on that Mount of Ascension. And as he appears to them, they're in doubt, they're afraid. And Jesus comes up and lays his hand on them and he tells them not to be afraid. So I suggest to you that what John is trying to do for the Christians as he is unrolling in different descriptions the judgment that God is going to bring about on their enemies because they're persecuting them, it's, it's a reminder to us that when you mess with the bride of Christ, you really get the groom upset. And it doesn't seem that way to them in the moment. All they can sense and feel is a series of setbacks where they're marginalized by society and they're on the outside looking in in their world. And yet God is saying, you shouldn't be afraid. And let me suggest to you that when we study the book of Revelation, for children of God, we shouldn't be afraid. Now what John is saying to the Romans is, you should be very, very afraid. You know... If we could maybe illustrate it this way, to think about what was going on in Rome in the first century, in the Roman world. Suppose that here in America we found ourselves in a situation to where uh, our government was persecuting us specifically because we're Christians. And God sent a message to us saying that perhaps through communism or through Islam that God was going to punish America for their persecution of Christians I know you're patriotic as I am, but if you're a Christian who is suffering at the hands of your government and you get this kind of a message, how would it make you feel? If you don't know if you're going to get to the end of the day without losing your life. 
And you have a message from God that's saying, I'm going to use someone else to create this problem for your enemy so that you can have relief. Wouldn't you feel pretty good? Wouldn't you feel encouraged by that? So when we get to Revelation chapter 10, we're going to have some imagery that's going to help us uh, to appreciate this message of comfort about, of what God is about to do. All right? So when we get to Revelation chapter 10, it'll be helpful for us perhaps, I think, to uh, read the text. And it's a very short chapter. And then to kind of break down. I call this chapter the little book and outlining it. So Revelation chapter 10. All right, so just remember, God has described a nation that's under his wrath in chapter 8 and chapter 9. God hasn't executed his wrath on those people yet. Why hasn't God dropped the hammer yet? Okay, give them time. What else was said back here? He's merciful. And it's the mercy that leads to the patience... So what's he wanting in his patience and his mercy? What's he wanting for the oppressors, the persecutors? Change. Isn't that remarkable? When you look at the depravity and the immorality of the Roman society and the the fact that we look back on it and say, it's amazing that God didn't act quicker than he did. But here is God who is saying, I still want to relent. I don't want to do this. Even the ones who are executing persecution and killing my saints. If they'll turn around and they'll come back to me, then I'll accept them. I'll have them. I mean, that's a great message for us. Not to use the grace of God as a cover or a couch for us to continue to live immorally, but to appreciate that the God that we serve is not that one perched on the edge of heaven who's just waiting to destroy and annihilate us for the things that we do, but continually waits for us, wants us to come back, even the Romans. So even the worst of those that you could think around you, that's our God. All right, so Revelation chapter 10, verse 1 through 11. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book which was open, and he placed the right, his right foot on the sea, and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a, a lion roars, and when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write." And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore to him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be no longer delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, and he, as he preached... To his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. All right, so how would you synopsize Revelation chapter 10 in a few words? 
All right, I guess that's my job. The place for us to begin, I think, is for us to look at the strong angel in Revelation 10, verse 1 through verse 3. Now, before we deal with what his identity might be, I want to point out to you that of all the created beings, and that kind of tips my hand as to where I'm at on this, um, there is more detail given about this angel than any other created being in the book. So as you begin to walk through those first three verses, let's try to do it in order. What, how is this angel described? Okay, let's use John's words. Revelation 10, start at the beginning. I kind of gave it like a two-second hint while ago. Okay, all right, and without, I'll come back to that in just a moment, but that helps me to kind of get some idea as to the identity of this angel, and, and we'll talk about some of the possibilities. All right, so another mighty angel. Yes, he's mighty. That's good. That's kind of an overall description, but get into the details of it. All right, so he's robed in a cloud. So let's think about so that these don't, what will happen is you'll read through all of that series of, of details and it'll just overwhelm you and you'll just kind of shut down. You'll think, well, never mind, I, I just can't, I can't grasp this. But let's take each of these one by one and I think it begins to really make sense to us. And re- remember something that Hiram has said to us as he's walked through the book. We don't want to lose the big picture in the details. But I believe that these details kind of all work together to give us a painting of one picture. So when you think about clouds in Scripture, what do they indicate to us? Not when we're talking literally, but when we're talking figuratively. The presence of God? In what? In what regard? When God comes on the clouds, what do you associate that with? The judgment. All right, so we've got the presence of God. We've got the judgment of God. In fact, we've already seen that in Revelation, haven't we? At the very beginning, as we have the introduction of uh, the book and, and its theme, he says in, I think, chapter 1 and verse 7, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. They that looked upon him and pierced him, all nations of the, of the earth shall well because of him. Even so, Amen. So all but three of the times that clouds are found in Scripture, it's used in this figurative sense. And so when we try to understand who this being is, and we see that he's coming on cloud, then what does that represent to us? Okay, it's power and glory. But this power and glory is coming with judgment, right? As, as God's appearance or the representation of God is seen, when we see God's glory on the clouds... He's talking about judgment. Well, how does that fit in? What have we been seeing in chapter 8 and chapter 9? God's going to unleash his wrath on the Roman Empire. And that being the case, John is saying, what does that, what, if you're a Roman, what should that do? How should that make you feel? Afraid. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. But if you're a Christian, don't be afraid. That judgment's not for you. It's for them. All right, so how else is this angel described? He's robed in a cloud. All right, he's got a rainbow in his head. All right, so we've already been introduced to this idea of the rainbow in Revelation. By the way, that word, that particular word, is only found in these two verses. Revelation 4 and verse 3, and here in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 1. So when we talk about the rainbow, in the Old Testament the word is bow. What do you think of when you think of a rainbow? All right, so Noah, but... In connection with Noah, there's a promise. 
Alright, so in that particular passage, by the way, this is also found in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28, and it's the same idea as is in the book of Revelation, is you have the heavenly throne. And any time the heavenly throne is pictured, what are you getting? What, is it, what does it reveal to you when, you, when the, the throne of God is presented? In anywhere in Scripture, when out in the view you have the, the throne of God, what's human's response? What do you do before the throne? You bow. So the greatness of God is being revealed. And so this angel, this another mighty angel that comes, who is robed in a cloud, so he's clothed in judgment, he also is, is one who is coming with a rainbow in his head. Now, connecting it with those throne scenes in Revelation 4.3 and Ezekiel 1.28, we're going to be very reverent in the very presence of God, but... This idea of a promise, keeping with this image of the cloud being judgment, what's the promise that this angel's bringing with him for Rome? You're hurting my people. You're continuing, but don't think that you can flout, you can stand in the face of who I am and my people and not pay for that. I promise you that judgment's going to come. Yeah, yeah Pharaoh would be a good comparison there. Anytime somebody opposes God, God says that's not going to stand. And you stand against my people, that's not going to stand. Now, is it not also a picture in our mind that this promise of God being just and God going, uh, persevering and being faithful, that God is also going to deliver his people? Certainly I think it's implicit. But the main point is, is this angel is coming with a promise. And the promise of God stands sure. All right, what else do we see about this angel? He's robed in a cloud. He's got a rainbow in his head. He's got a face. Yeah, uh, let me see if I got that up there. Nope. All right, so you got the next two as well. All right, so he's got a face like the sun. What does that make us think about? Okay. So we've got the, when you think of the sun, just very simply, what? Brightness. Cheeriness, okay. I don't think that's what John doing here, but often it is that way. It is cheering for the Christians, for sure. Power. You know, you think about the sun itself, and, and um, it's this, this, the center of our solar system. It's, it's God's greater light to rule the day. So there's ruling, there's power, there's authority. All right, but, but notice what it says, though. What about this angel in the sun? How, what's the full description? His face was like the sun. Immediately, where do you go? Yeah, Jesus, that's good. But before Jesus, Jesus was kind of a fuller representation of what we'd seen earlier in Scripture. And remember, we'll say this in just a moment. John's, I love the way Hiram puts it, he's playing the greatest hits of the Bible, right? So he's, going, he's constantly going back into the Old Testament. Where do we first see the face shining? Moses, Why? He'd been in the presence of God for 40 days. What does he also receive? The Ten Commandments and the Law. And he brings it down. And of course, over time, his, the, his appearance, that, that glory faded, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But there's a, a, a brighter glory in Jesus uh, that exceeds that of uh, Moses. But you have this same idea. Why is the face of the angel shining like the sun? Where's he been? In the presence of God. And he's coming down from the presence of God with a divine message. 
Alright, so look, even though these are completely different pictures, you're getting one big picture painted for you. That we'll kind of summarize in just a moment. Alright, so test your memory. You know when you go to the cognitive test there and they flash things up and they take it away. What's the next description of this angel? Feet like pillars of fire. Alright, again, or legs, depending on your version. What's that all about? Draw on your Old Testament knowledge. Okay, all right, so let's think about how God guided the people of God uh, before they settled there uh, in Shiloh, when they're in the wilderness wanderings. What are those pillars of, what is that pillar of fire doing? Serves basically two purposes. Protection and guidance, that's it, in a nutshell. All right, so God's telling them where to go, and he is also providing a hedge for them. How does that going to fit with our imagery here in Revelation chapter 10 and what's been said up to this point? Don't be afraid because God is He's guiding, He's protecting, He's in control. As is in control as you remember, He's in control now as you look back on, on Scripture. Alright, what's the next one? Alright, He's got, well, is that, I, I may have this wrong. I don't even trust my own PowerPoint. I, I do it in Keynote and then I export it into PowerPoint and who, who knows what happens. Is this next or is it the book in His hand? Alright, so He's got the right foot on the uh, on, the, on the sea and the left foot on the land. See, I just want to make sure you're studying your Bible. Don't ever take the preacher's word for it just because he says it. What's, what's being represented? Either way you put it. Huh? Okay. Yeah, so what's left as far as we're concerned, certainly there's the sky, but as far as where events are taking place that concern these Christians and that involve the Romans, there you are. There's the totality. There's a representative picture. And what do we get from this picture that the angel has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea? So imagine you're John for a moment. He's seeing all of this, just like I'm looking at you and you're looking at me and at one another, and that's what he sees. What kind of an impression would that make on this, of this being materializing in such a way? There's the, the supernatural nature of this being, whoever it is who by virtue of that has, uh, is in control, has all power and all authority. Mr. Dolores? Good. Now I want you to hang on to that because in about two or three minutes or whatever it is, we're going to come back and talk about that. Uh, because a, a lot of people, and that's all right, I mean, you know, we're, we're doing this together here. Some people believe this is Christ. Now, the angel of the Lord, and it's a great study. You start with Hagar in the book of Genesis and you walk through Gideon and several other times when you do have the appearance of uh, the Word, Jesus, before he comes in the flesh, having what they call a Christophany. That's just a big word to say a revelation of Christ in some form. All right, so there are some, and I don't think there's a big problem with saying that this is Christ. Now, he's not, what does pre-incarnate mean? Anybody help me with that? Okay, well, yeah, you define the word with the word. That doesn't help us. Pre, pre is before, incarnate. What does that mean? It's a Latin phrase, incarnate. It means in flesh. Before Jesus came in the flesh. So now here's the question. Is this a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus? Because he's already been in the flesh. But if this is a vision, could this be a picture of the angel of Jehovah, of Jesus in angelic form? Could be. I don't have a problem with it if you, you hold that view. I don't, I don't think it is. Part of the key is in what Kevin said a moment ago, 
there's a series of angels that we're being introduced to. If this was Jesus, I don't know that John would just simply refer to him as another angel. Not only that, what does John do even when he thinks that what's in front of him is God? Even when it's not. He bows in worship. He doesn't do that here. So, I mean, I'll... I'll right. Scripture, I, I believe, does in other places, but, but John doesn't. But folks who believe it's Christ, the angel of the Lord. Angel just means messenger. I, I agree. I don't think John is. I believe Scripture is. But it's, if, if we go down that rabbit hole, we won't get through Revelation chapter 10. You and I will talk about it afterwards. I believe I can prove pretty, pretty well. You look at Gideon and you see what happens when he appears to Manoah uh, when, uh, before Samson's birth. When the angel of the Lord is worshipped, we either have the worship of angels and it's not rebuked or it's the before he's in the flesh picture. I don't believe we have any depictions of Jesus as an angel once he comes. That's the short answer. If we need more, we'll talk about it. All right. But if it's not Jesus, and I don't think that it is, who is it? If we go to Daniel chapter 12, we have a very... And remember, what does he do? Here's the the thing. The better we know the Old Testament, the better we're able to understand what John is talking about here. You know, we kind of do that, right? We will refer back to events. Um, I don't know if you're movie watchers. There, there are famous lines um, that that are, are stated. Um, uh, you can't handle the truth. If I were to say that, where, where does that come from? A few good men. All right, I've got an offer that you can't refuse. I figured guys would tell me that one. Godfathers. Okay, wasn't a guy, but there you go. Um, or uh, show me the money. Well, I'm going to preach a sermon on movies. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so what you, have, what you have going on in the book of Revelation is you have him referring to hits. Oh, and when, when you're listening to this and you're reading this, you're going, oh, that's Jeremiah. Oh, that's Daniel. Oh, that's Ezekiel. I remember that. I saw that. And that's what John is doing here. And so it, that's why I believe it's Gabriel because that's who it is uh, in the book of Daniel. Some would say that it's Michael because he's going to appear for us in Revelation chapter 12. But uh, he's, he's an amazing being, whoever he is. All right, that's the point. What else do we see about him? I think you've already said it. He has a little book open in his hand. And what does that represent to us? What's the name of the book? The whole book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the book we're studying. Revelation. What's the point of that? It's a revealing. So it's a little book. Who's it coming from? The angel. The the messenger on a divine mission. He has come, he's got a little book, and it's open in his hand. What does that indicate to us? It's revealed. Okay? And then we see that he cries with the roar of a lion. What does that indicate to us in Scripture? First of all, here you're John. This is a real vision that's coming to you. And you hear the lion roar, what's that going to do? If any... You've at least been to the zoo. Anybody ever been on a, a safari? Been out in the wild? And you hear a lion roar? We were in Terengary National Park years ago, and we were pausing to eat lunch. And there's a little group of us under a tree, and we bowed our head, and I led the prayer. And about a third of the way through, there was a roar. And it, I mean, it literally, I could feel it going through my chest. And I lifted up my eyes, and I saw that nobody was bowing their heads. 
We kind of were taking a step toward the safari truck, right? Because lion doesn't play. I mean, that's the it's the king of the jungle. Uh, and so here's John, and he gets this vision, and what's the effect that it has when this lion roars? He's not he doesn't just appear. So you have this picture, but again, who is the picture for, and who's the picture against? That's what John is trying to show for. So you have this mighty angel uh, that appears, and John describes him for us. Um, but we also have something else that takes place here. What, what's, what else happens besides this angel that's described for us? Okay, the seven thunders. So let's go ahead and, and move to, to that. We've already talked about that. The seven peals of thunder in verse 4. What's said about it? Okay. All right. So something is revealed. And John's natural response, as it has been throughout this book, when something's revealed to him, he's going to write it down. All right, so why doesn't he write this down? He's told not to. All right, so the question is, do we, do we see that? Uh, well, first of all, let's talk about this. I want to make sure. When you, we want to understand the symbols. What does thunder symbolize? How many of y'all, any of y'all outside yesterday morning? All right, the presence of a storm, and, and when thunder shows up in the storm, we've got a, our, our Westie poo, I just feel my manhood just going out just saying that, huh? but we have a, a dog, and, and, and uh, Oliver, the older he gets, every time there's a storm, he's going to be on somebody's head or just panicking or whatever, right? Because it's fierce. Now, probably some of that's aging, but if you're out in it, I was out painting outside yesterday, and I was watching lightning hit the ground, and then right after the lightning, watch out, here comes the thunder. It's mighty. All right, so you have the, the thunder. Thunder represents power. It represents judgment. It's seven peals of thunder. What would that represent to us? We've already seen that in the book of Revelation. It's, it's complete. It's perfect. It's thorough judgment. All right. The fact that John doesn't write it down, what does that indicate to us? Most of the time in the book, what's the, the, the idea of the revelation that John is sharing with the church? Revelation 1.1, Revelation 1.3, Revelation 22.6, Revelation 22 and verse 10. When are these things going to happen that he's writing about? Soon. And the things that are going to happen soon, what does God want John to do? Write it down, reveal it. So what might we surmise about this? Okay, yes, yeah, so if you want to write a reference in your Bible, Daniel 8.28, Daniel 12.4, and Daniel 12.9. Do you remember that Daniel receives visions? And a lot of it is going to come at a certain particular time. A lot of it's going to deal with their returning from their exile and going back into their land. But, of course, there are several visions that deal with the future. Daniel 2.44 deals with the establishment of the church. Um, Revelation 11 and verse 15 is going to point back to that when they have this eternal kingdom that comes but he also, in Daniel chapter 12, says, write these things down because their fulfillment is going to come much later. So whatever it was, it wasn't pertinent to the overall message of what was about to happen. It's something that's going to happen later. It's going to happen after the things that are prophesied about Rome is fulfilled. Perhaps, does it have to do with uh, uh, what we see in Revelation 20, 11 through the end of the Bible? the things that come at the very end, but whatever, he doesn't write it down at this point. Okay? Any thoughts, questions about that to this point? All right. 
Hiram and I were talking about how far I should go, and where we were going to go originally was chapter 11, verse 13. There's two more little visions in chapter 11, and I said, if I know me, I'm going to need to just do chapter 10. But we've got two quarters, and so that's fine. All right, so we have the the next thing we see is the swearing angel in verse 5 through 7. And not swearing in the sense of his holding up his right hand. Um, It's the same angel from verse 1 through 3. He raises his right hand, which appears to signify uh, what happens in a court of law today. Um, Have we seen this somewhere before? An angel raising his hand. You write in your notes, you might want to write Daniel chapter 12 and verse 7. John's going back and grabbing all these Old Testament images, and he's trying to make a, a connection. Now, We discussed the date, and I also agree that the date of Revelation is probably after the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, I don't know, are there some of you who believe it's before, AD 70? Now, not for some doctrine that believes that everything was completed by AD 70, including the resurrection and the judgment, not at all. But there are some good Bible students that believe that this was written maybe right before the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. And they would look at verse 5, 6, and 7 uh, as a, a proof of that. That what this message is for is for the Jews because the Jews were also persecuting the Christians. You have the Romans, the overall enemy that Paul is, or rather John is dealing with in the book of Revelation, but you also have a consistent um, persecution that has come from the Jews. And they would argue that Um, since the gospel was preached on the day of Pentecost, through his greatest men, God was trying to get the Jews to repent and to return and to come back. And his patience is about to run out, and they would point to Daniel's reference to time, times, and half a time. Time, for the purpose of that interpretation, is one year, times two years, half a time is half a year, so three and a half years. It so happens that the Jewish wars that leads to the destruction of Jerusalem takes three and a half years. And they see this as a message of hope and relief for the Christians that one of their tormentors that God has been trying to get to repent for 40 years through the preaching of the apostles and others that they're about to be destroyed and there's going to be relief for the people of God. I I don't believe that, but again, I don't think it's a fellowship issue if you think that the book was written before then and that's a plausible explanation. If you believe that this is in reference to what's going to happen in Rome, then you go to chapter 11 and verse 15 and maybe make a note there from chapter 10, verse 5 through 7, where the seventh angel finally speaks after these visions and we get back to this seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded, 11.15, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. If God's plans and purposes would be finished when that happened, then the angel would be telling the Christians that God's promises are sure. Rome's injustice does not throw off God's justice, and Rome would fall and God's kingdom would stand forever. I think that's a plausible and a good explanation. But the point is, God's got his own timetable, and God has been patient to this point, but I promise you, that's... That's what this angel is indicating, it seems to me. I promise that God's word, as it has always been, is going to come to pass. Because God's promises always do. 
All right, so he is vouching that what John has been saying about the pending, because you're in the middle of it. You're going day by day. You're, you're, you're kept out of the marketplace. Your business maybe is getting taken from you. Your property's being stolen from you. You're, you're losing your life. Your family members are losing their life. And you're like the, the martyrs under the throne in Revelation 6 and verse 9. And you say, oh Lord, how long? When is this going to happen? And so this swearing angel is indicating it is going to take place. Um, the mystery, I believe to be the mystery as it is used everywhere else in the New Testament. That is that the gospel is for all. The gospel is for Jew and for Gentile. And by this point, whichever date you take, the A.D. 69 or the A.D. 90, um, the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven, Colossians 1.23. And so the gospel has gone into all the world. Everybody has this message in hand. They can respond to that. Uh, and those that do, they're reassured by John and the angel that all is going to be well with them. All right, so let me get, for the sake of time, to that last point. All right, we have the, I call it the sweet and sour snack, but that's a little bit too many S's, but it, there's the sweet and sour book, the meal that John is told to consume. So, again, anytime you see this, and it causes your brain to lock up, you ask yourself, have we seen this in Scripture before? All right, so maybe you have cross-references in your Bible. Where have we seen this mandate to take a book, a scroll given from God, and eat it? Okay, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2 and Ezekiel 3, where, where in Jeremiah? Didn't, Jeremiah 15, all right. So you have a mission in which they're told to, to take that and to consume it. And you have this similar idea that it's sweet going down and then it's also bitter. Um, what's the difference between those visions and what happens here in Revelation? Just a slight difference. What does John have to do? John's mission is a little bit more involved than it was for Ezekiel or Jeremiah. They were told, take it, eat it. What's John told? Go and get it. Take it and eat it. All right, so what's involved in this sweet and sour? What's, what's the picture that's being painted there, of the sweet and the bitter, I should say? First of all, if, you, if you'll keep this in mind, what, what John is telling us in this chapter can be broken down into two very simple points. Appreciate the word. That's verses 1 through 7. Appreciate this promise that's being delivered by the hand of this angel that there is relief coming, that you're not going to suffer forever, that God's justice is going to be met on the Romans. But then the, the message of the last four verses is to appropriate the word, to digest the word. And so what's this idea that it's sweet and it's bitter? Okay. All right. Let, let's, let's think a little bit more about the bitterness. The, the, the message is bitter because what's going to happen? What, what are we going to read as we go through the book of Revelation? Is this it? Is this day last of the persecution? Okay. I'm sure there's going to be a feeling of sympathy among the Christians for folks that aren't. So it's a good thought. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, and alongside of that, the message is not all great that things are done. He's going to reveal there's more persecution to come for them. In addition, it's not, it's not done for them. Why is it sweet? It's sweet because God's going to keep his word. That it's going to come to pass. So, in the last five minutes, let's just kind of look at some hearing and keeping application that we can make with regard to Revelation chapter 10. 
The first message I think for us is, is that God's Word is distinct from every other message. Now, if you'll walk through the chapter, John depicts the Word of God with several different images. In verse 2, it's a little book. In verse 7, it's the mystery of God. In verse 7 and verse 11, it's the prophecy of the prophets. He says, my servants, the prophets, I've spoken. This is going to be completed. It's also seen in John and his readiness to write down the things that the seven thunders say in verse 4. It's seen in the swearing of the angel in verse 6. That's God's word that he is vowing is true. And it's the promised uh, voice of the seventh angel. Remember that the book of Revelation is called that because God's revealing his word. And we live in a world of people who are trying to find truth. And they say that they value truth and they believe truth, but they reject the only source of true truth. And the information is relevant, it's reliable, and it's redemptive. And so God is making this message known from beginning to end that there's no word like the word of God. I think that's reinforced in this chapter. More than we can say about that, but for the sake of time, keep your image of God's greatness sharp. No matter who you believe is appearing to John in this vision, it's not uh, 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 if you think it's Christ or if you think it's an angel, it's still God's power being represented. And it's a reminder for us that the God that we serve is great. You know, in a couple of minutes we're going to go into worship. And I believe it does us good. We talked about this in the spiritual disciplines class. To clear our minds, to rivet our focus on what we're about to do. In 15 minutes, we're going to come into the throne room of God as a people. And we're going to come before the great I Am. And sometimes I think maybe our picture of God is too small, too dull, too ordinary. I don't know that it would hurt us to go to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, maybe at, at uh, 10, 28, or 29, and read that. Or Isaiah 40, verse 12 through 27. Or Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it, before whose presence the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the small and great, stand before God. The God we're about to worship is that God. And Revelation 10 can help us to clarify our picture and our view of God. So that he doesn't become ordinary and that worship doesn't become mundane and just something that's a matter of habit as we focus on him. I wish we had more time to talk about this. We need a good theology of angels. Um, maybe this has been discussed before, but if you have pictures of angels, angels, not seraphim or the cherubim, with wings, or if you have a picture of uh, angels as little kids, or a picture of angels as women. Um, maybe you have some more Hollywood theology than you have actually biblical theology. They're not the cute little precious uh, moments. Uh, cherubs, they're not sweet and oafish creatures like Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life. And yes, I love the movie, but that's not where we get our, our theology from. When angels appear in Scripture, we see these mighty messengers like we see in Revelation chapter 10. Number four, we need to consume the Word of God. Now, you believe in that. That's why you're here in Bible class this morning. But it's not enough for us to have access to it. 
God tells John to eat it, to consume it, to digest it. And if you think about all the images in the Bible that are food images with regard to the Word of God, Job says that it was more valuable to him than its necessary food. Job 23 and verse 12, it's milk, right? 1 Peter 2 and verse 2, it's meat. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, it's sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. Uh, Psalm 19 and verse 10. And so it's meant for to be a part of us and, to, and, when, it, and when it does become part of who we are, and we digest it and we consume it, we are changed people. It transforms us. Finally, I would suggest verse 11 indicates to us, be ready to go again. Now for John, that is, all right, some more visions. We're not done. Be ready to prophesy to to that wide swath of people there in verse 11. Let me say this. This is the closing thought. You woke up on this side of time. You know what God's message for you is? Do it again. Keep doing it until you lay your armor down. Be ready to do His Word, His will, until there's no more days for you on this earth. All right. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I agree. At the very least, we have God's power being represented. Um, And I I actually have no problem with that interpretation at all. I think it's a fine one. All right.